Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project, by me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to meet the saint who faced down Attila the Hun. Name, Leo, or Leo the Great. Life, around 400 to 461 A.D. Status, Saint. Feast, November 10th. In 410 A.D., the barbarians burst through the gates of Rome. They sacked the city. These were Visigoths, but the Visigoths were only one of many barbarian groups moving west. All of a sudden, the Goths, Vandals, Alans, Franks, Saxons, Angles, and Jutes overwhelmed the Western Roman Empire, which collapsed as a result. It was only later that the Romans understood why the barbarians were on the move. The barbarians were fleeing from something worse. That thing was still behind them, still pursuing them. And in 452 AD, when the man we remember as Leo the Great was Pope in Rome, it arrived. Leo had become Pope twelve years earlier. He was a Roman, although we know that he was outside the city when he learned the papacy had fallen to him. Leo was born in Rome in one of the worst times to be a Roman. Growing up, Leo survived the sack of the city and watched as Roman aristocrats frittered away what was left in destructive power games. Perhaps the only thing worse than being a Roman in that time was to be the Pope. For the popes of the early 5th century didn't only have to deal with the barbarians and the crumbling empire. They were also defending a church that was being attacked from almost every direction. Heretics were leading the faithful into ever more destructive error. And meanwhile, in Rome itself, subversive cultists were infiltrating Christian gatherings. When a modern pope is chosen, the room where he puts on his new vestments, and where the weight of responsibility descends on his shoulders, is called the Room of Tears. Leo was in Gaul when the news came that he had been chosen as the next pope. He must have felt the weight of his new role as he returned to the city. But we can guess at his thoughts from something he said a few years later about St. Peter, the first pope, and a saint who was often on Leo's mind. Peter had gone from a nervous fisherman and, at times, the gospel's comic relief figure, to the man who strode fearlessly into pagan Rome. It is to Rome that you, most blessed Apostle Peter, were not afraid to come. You walked into this forest of wild beasts, and to this deep ocean of wicked superstition, more readily 
than when you walked on water. And you did not fear Rome, the mistress of the world, though you feared the maid in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Was the power of Claudius or the cruelty of Nero less than the judgment of Pilate or the cruelty of the Jews? Leo's point is that Peter's world hadn't become less dangerous when Peter came to Rome. Actually, it had become far more dangerous. But Peter had changed. The frightened fisherman had become what Jesus recognized in that first encounter, the unshakable rock on which the church was built. And now it was Leo's turn to follow the fisherman, to become a rock like him. Leo squared his shoulders and returned to Rome. For the next 21 years, Leo would be the archetype of the Pope, a title which, after all, is related to our word Papa, Dad. Leo took a father's responsibility for the squabbling, hopeless family that was the church, organizing it, disciplining it, nurturing it, and when necessary, putting himself in harm's way to defend it. Leo lived in such turbulent times that we barely know anything about him before he became Pope. We can speculate that he knew his way around imperial politics, because the reason he was in Gaul was to repair a rift that had opened between two aristocrats. After he became Pope, Leo comes into focus for us through the clear, authoritative words of his letters and sermons. Leo's clarity was much needed. Long before Leo became Pope, Arian heretics had suggested that Jesus was a subordinate creation, a sort of lower God under the authority of God the Father. Orthodox Christians rejected the Arian heresy, but how exactly should this rejection be framed? The influential Bishop Nestorius ended up arguing that Jesus should be thought of as two persons, a human and a divine one, so that Mary is the mother only of the human part of Jesus. Many in the church saw that this was wrong, and no one rejected it as enthusiastically as the priest Eutyches. No, Eutyches said, in Jesus, the human and divine were completely fused. The reaction to the heresy of Nestorius had spawned the heresy of Eutyches, and something needed to be done. Pope Leo understood that this wasn't just a question of correcting and containing heresy. Nestorius and Eutyches weren't trying to lead people astray, they were trying to get the theology right. Leo wasn't going to argue with them, because that's not what a father does. He was going to correct them, and to show them how to do things better. And so, Leo produced a letter where he explains the nature of Christ so clearly, so persuasively, and so authoritatively that those who read it could only nod their heads. This short letter has come to be known as the Tome. The problem, Leo says, is that Nestorius and Eutyches sought to introduce into God's church two heresies, the one contrary to the other. The truth of the matter lay between their errors. It is true, therefore, that there is in one Lord 
Jesus Christ, the true Son of God and man, one person of the Word and the flesh. And without separation and division, they perform their acts in common. And if that seems too complicated and theological, Leo explained it in very simple terms using the Christmas story. Without the power of the Word, the Virgin would not conceive and not give birth. And without the reality of the flesh, the infant would not lie wrapped in swaddling clothes. Without the power of the Word, the Magi would not adore the boy pointed out to them by the guiding star. And without the reality of the flesh, there would be no command to transfer the boy into Egypt and remove him from Herod's persecution. The tome helped to put the heresies to rest. But Leo's problems didn't end there. Heretics were at least trying to be Christians. Leo would also have to deal with a subversive group who were trying to get the church to become something else. A few years earlier, the barbarian Vandals had swept into Roman North Africa. The Vandals were Aryan heretics, and they set about persecuting the Orthodox Christians of North Africa. But the Vandals also persecuted a cult that had emerged from Persia and put down roots in North Africa, Manichaeism. The founder of the cult, a man who called himself the illustrious one, Mani, taught that the universe was a battle between two equally matched forces, the good forces of light and the evil forces of darkness. Manny adapted the biblical story to fit Jesus into this tale as a representative of the light. So Manichees called themselves followers of Jesus. Many in Roman North Africa had been persuaded by their arguments. Even St. Augustine was a Manichee before he became a Christian. When the Vandals cracked down on Manichaeism, many of the Manichees traveled to Rome and tried to slip into the church. It was a method that other groups, like the Freemasons, would try to follow, slip into the church and gradually replace Orthodox Christians with members of a different religion. Unfortunately for the Manichees, they had not reckoned with a pope like Leo. Leo reacted like a father protecting his family. He instructed his bishops in how to identify, isolate, and expel the subversive Manichees. And then Leo explained the situation in his sermons, telling the faithful about the problem and explaining how they could solve it. The church would have to work together. Believers would have to close ranks. The soul you were saving wasn't necessarily your own. It might be your neighbor's. And so, dearly beloved, renounce all friendship with these men who are utterly abominable and pestilential, and whom disturbances in other districts have brought in great numbers to the city. I entreat and admonish you loyally to inform us, if any of you know where they dwell, where they teach, whose houses they frequent, in whose company they take rest. Because it is of little avail to anyone that through the Holy Ghost's protection he is not caught by them himself if he takes no action when he knows that others are being caught. As they realized that the church was not going to be easy to infiltrate, the Manichees moved on. 
Leo's words were helping to contain heresy. The church was as stable as it could be. The next challenge came from outside. The barbarians who had been pouring into Roman territory were fleeing a Turkic people we remember as the Huns. In 399, St. Jerome had watched with apprehension as the Huns began to appear. For news came that the hordes of the Huns had poured forth all the way from Maotis, the Sea of Azov, and that, speeding here and there on their nimble-footed horses, they were filling all the world with panic and bloodshed. May Jesus avert from the Roman world the farther assaults of these wild beasts. Everywhere their approach was unexpected. They outstripped rumor in speed. And when they came, they spared neither religion, nor rank, nor age. Even for wailing infants, they had no pity. The Huns fit into a warrior pattern that had always vexed Western fighters. Westerners have always preferred to fight man to man, to determine, as would once have been said, who is the better man. The Huns, on the other hand, relied on speed and range. They charged into battle on horseback, screaming terrible war cries. But when they got close, they fired bone-tipped arrows from compound bows that were more powerful than anything the Romans could make. The Huns then broke into smaller units, never letting the Romans come to grips with them. Which was not to say that the Huns couldn't fight. Even a pinned-down Hun was dangerous, cutting down with a sword at close range and then switching to a lasso to immobilize and drag an unwary Roman soldier. The Huns had long been a threat. They had grown powerful under King Bleda, until he had been murdered by his even more ruthless brother, Attila. They called him Flagellum Dei, the Scourge of God. Now, Attila was leading his people west. One of our rare glimpses of Attila the Hun comes from the Roman scholar Priscus, who got himself invited to a dinner at Attila's court along with a Roman delegation. Priscus found Attila short, powerfully built, with dark and ugly features. He also noticed that Attila was not like the squabbling, status-hungry aristocrats of Rome. Attila seemed to have total self-control, and he had the confidence of someone with nothing left to prove. While those around him dressed in finery, Attila dressed like a simple soldier. He fed Priscus and the other Romans a fancy meal served on expensive silver plates, but Attila himself ate only meat from a wooden plate and drank from a plain wooden cup. His prized possession was a sword. It had, so they said, belonged to the Roman god of war. Now, Attila was pushing into the Roman Empire. It wasn't just that he wanted land. The destructive games of the Roman aristocracy had played a role as well. The sister of the emperor didn't like the marriage that had been arranged for her. So she sent a letter to Attila, asking him to come rescue her. She included a ring. Attila chose to interpret this as an offer of marriage, to join his other wives. 
And as dowry? Well, half of the Western Roman Empire sounded about right. Now he was marching to Rome to get his new wife and what was owed to him. The Romans didn't have an army capable of taking on the Huns. Their last great general, Aetius, cobbled together a group of Romans and barbarians who were able to put a dent in the Hunnic horde in the Battle of the Catalonian Plains in the north of modern France. The Huns stopped to regroup, but just a year later, they were again pushing toward France. Pope Leo had been preaching about the importance of learning the lesson of the first sack of Rome. He was amazed to see that few had learned anything from it. The Romans were back to feasting and growing soft, and their rulers were back to playing their dangerous games. Now, no one dared to go out and confront Attila at the head of the Roman delegation. Leo volunteered. There is no record of what was said at the meeting, though an anonymous medieval life of Leo provides a dramatic suggestion. As Leo said these things, Attila stood looking upon his venerable garb and aspect, silent as if thinking deeply. And lo, suddenly there were seen the apostles Peter and Paul, clad like bishops, standing by Leo, the one on the right hand, the other on the left. They held swords stretched out over his head, and threatened Attila with the death if he did not obey the Pope's command. Whatever Attila saw, or Leo said, we do know what happened next. Attila wheeled his army around, and marched away from Rome. Attila himself had only another year to live, and when he died, his sons tore the Hunnic kingdom apart in their fight to take his place. Leo had saved the city. You might think that after this close call, the Roman aristocracy would be very, very careful about inviting barbarians to come to Rome. But you would be wrong. Some years later, when the Roman emperor was killed in a palace coup, his widow wrote to the king of the Vandals, asking him to come and avenge her. The Vandal king was feeling strong, and he was only too happy to have a reason to come to Rome. And so, in 455, a Vandal fleet sailed across the Mediterranean from Africa to avenge the emperor in the most barbarian way possible. Many of Rome's aristocrats fled when the Vandals arrived. I imagine Pope Leo smacking himself on the forehead, not quite able to believe that the aristocracy had provoked two barbarians in just a few years. But the role of a pope is to act when no one else will. Once again, it was left to Leo to do something. Attila had been a pagan. Gaiseric, the king of the Vandals, was an Arian who was actively persecuting Orthodox Christians in his domain. Leo had very little to bargain with. But even so, he struck a deal. The Vandals fully intended to sack Rome, but there would be no killing. The people of Rome would not be enslaved. They would be safe, mostly. Gaiseric took back many of Rome's feckless aristocrats as hostages, 
including the woman who had summoned him in the first place. The vandals sacked Rome for two weeks. But Leo's flock gathered in the churches, where they were left alone. And so, after the vandal sack of Rome, Leo was left with a much poorer city. It must have been a depressing time to be alive. But I can't help but notice a verse to which Leo always returned in his sermons to the people of Rome. It's Matthew sixteen eighteen, what Jesus says to Peter, the surprised fisherman and future pope. You are Peter. And this is Leo's interpretation. That is to say, although I, that is the speaker, Jesus, am the indestructible rock, you are also rock, because you are made firm in my strength. And on this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Leo understood better than most what Jesus' words to Peter mean. You don't get to the gates at the beginning of a war. You get to the gates at the very end, when all the armies have been defeated, when it is time to take the capital city. Leo had seen it in the case of Rome. The church under Pope Leo had many challenges. There was much to do before leading the army of God to the very gates of hell. But Rome, too, had seemed invincible once, when the first pope had arrived. Look at Rome now. The church would march on in its very long war, would weather the turbulent 5th century and the troubles of centuries to come. This confession, Leo wrote, will not be restrained by the gates of hell. It will not be bound by the chains of death. For that declaration is indeed a declaration of life.